Creative Babble. This podcast contains disturbing and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Criminal Conduct. Do you have any reason why he wouldn't have told people up here about it? I'm thinking the reason he didn't tell me is because I'd be thinking, well, shit, that's where all the money I'm giving you is going. So I've seen all the crime scene photos, seen the blood stain on the fucking floor, you know, it, it just don't make no sense. Jeremy Banks jumps in his unmarked Chevy Impala and hits a gas. He doesn't have time to change into his uniform. Every second counts. He's wearing a white t-shirt and black jeans and is armed with a concealed weapon. It's almost been nine years since Michelle O'Connell died, but right now, on the afternoon of September 25th, 2019, he's off duty and pursuing a target. Jeremy drives in and out of neighborhoods trying to locate the vehicle. He doesn't radio in his location. At one point, Deputy Banks uses his cell phone to call St. John's Sheriff's Office, but he hangs up right before the call is connected. He's gonna handle this emergency alone. Jeremy finally catches up to the vehicle and flips on his police lights. And who was he after? A school bus filled with middle schoolers. Jeremy Banks pulled the bus over to the side of the road just off US Highway 1. Here is bus driver Kathleen Wooster describing what happened next during an interview with St. John's County Sheriff's Office Internal Affairs. The officer came up behind me in his vehicle and pulled me over with his lights. Okay. And then he came up to the side of my bus. He was not in uniform, so I was skeptical of the situation. So I actually waited and he came over and he pulled out his badge and he put it up to my door. So I opened it up. Deputy Banks commandeered a school bus full of kids, because that's what we're dealing with here, middle school age kids. So what's going on here? Why did Jeremy Banks stop a school bus in an unmarked vehicle? Jeremy says his stepson came home upset and said he was bullied. Apparently, a kid on a bus drew all over him with markers. So Jeremy just gets in his police car and just pulls the bus over? Yes, quite a dramatic reaction. He told me he wanted to press criminal charges against the other student. She explains to Jeremy Banks that yes, the kids drew on themselves with markers, but he wasn't bullied. His stepson was a willing participant. Even though Jeremy now realizes that he may not have the full story, he still worked up. The bus driver went on to talk about Deputy Banks' demeanor during the traffic stop. He was upset, but he wasn't projecting, you know what I mean? Like he was, you could tell he was upset. He was a parent who thought his kid was being bullied, but he wasn't violent or anything. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I like hostility? No, not, I mean, he, no, not, not towards me or anything like, or any, uh-huh. like, I had two children on the bus when it happened. So, um, yeah, nothing, I mean, he was, like I said, he was upset. She described him as an upset parent, not as a police officer. During his interview with Internal Affairs, Jeremy Banks talks about his thought process after he pulled over the school bus. She's trying to tell me exactly what's going on, and I'm I'm hearing her, and then I did ask if the other kids were on the bus, and the reason why, um, I wasn't planning on going to get them, I wasn't going to get on the bus and and 
snatch these kids up. I knew that that wasn't my place. My primary goal was stop the bus, find out what's going on. Deputy Banks asked the bus driver if the child in question was still on the bus. The bus driver told him he wasn't, but that even if he was, she couldn't tell him or let him on the bus. If we back up a bit to what started this incident, after Jeremy Banks' stepson got off the school bus, Jeremy felt like he was acting differently. Here is Jeremy explaining the conversation with his stepson. You could see he was upset and he wanted to run inside the house and we were looking at him, what's going on? And he said that kids on the bus had held him down and marked all over his body and I have pictures if you'd like to see them, I can send them to you. I mean, it was, it was significant. This discussion and the belief that his stepson was bullied prompted Deputy Banks to react. So I go cop mode. You know, the, my son's been held down. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to go get the bus and figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I, I get my patrol car and I know general the route of the bus. So I think, okay, she's probably out by US 1. So I go to US 1 in Round Road area and I don't see her. I'm like, okay, well, just go home. Just go home, figure this out. But he doesn't go home. He continues searching for the school bus. There's also one other thing that Jeremy Banks doesn't do. On my way out, I called the sheriff's office to find out who the YRD was to have them in route. But then before anybody answered, I hung up. I said, no, let's find out what's going on first. Jeremy Banks started to call in the incident, but instead he opted to go it alone. During the traffic stop, Deputy Banks never stepped onto the bus. The bus driver stated that she was initially nervous because he wasn't wearing a uniform, but she didn't feel threatened. But John, this must have been terrifying for the bus driver and for all those kids on board the bus. I mean, here comes this unmarked vehicle and a guy in plain clothes pulling the bus over. I mean, he could have been anyone. Yeah, I don't know what he was thinking. This was definitely an impulsive decision. Here, Jeremy attempted to further explain his actions. Mm-hmm. So I grabbed my ID out of my wallet real quick and I, I held it up to the door just so she knew what exactly was going on or what I, who I was anyway. And uh, she opens the door and I said, who I was, I said, I was Deputy Banks with the Sheriff's Office that she had just dropped my son off at the house. I don't remember exactly how the conversation went, but she kind of cut me off and interjected and was just like, no, no, that was, he was a willing participant. He knows he's completely in the wrong. It's one of those things where I know I probably shouldn't have gotten involved in regards to this is my son, I should have, In the grand scheme of things, I know that juveniles aren't arrested and taken to jail. There's no immediate justice or nothing. I know nothing would have happened right then. So maybe I shouldn't have stopped the bus, but I didn't. Look, everybody has bad days. And as a parent, we would do anything to protect our kids. But Jeremy's actions here are really telling about his character. Whatever his reasons were for stopping that bus, it doesn't really matter. He made a snap decision without thinking things through. Throughout the interview, Deputy Banks tiptoed along the line of acknowledging what he did was wrong while stating that it was still justified. Well, I know now that I overstepped, um, but you know, I, I, I don't want to hide from it. I, don't, I completely want to be transparent and, and throw myself out there and, and fall on my sword if I have to. But at the time, I really thought my kid was bullied and battered. And, okay. You know, like, I, 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 didn't, I don't recall feeling the need to apologize for stopping the bus because I didn't have a reason. I felt that I had a reason. I had the reasonable belief that a crime had occurred, so stop the bus, and let's, let's, let's see what we got. 
if I was there on duty, completely unrelated to the situation, and somebody got their kid off the bus and they told them what my son told me, and they looked at me and they said, what are you going to do about it? I'd go do the same thing. I'd stop the bus and I'd figure out what's going on. Can you imagine if cops stopped school buses every time a child claimed to be picked on? There wouldn't be a bus that could make it a round trip without being pulled over. Okay, so he stops the bus. What now? Was he planning on arresting the kid? Jeremy says he had no plans of pulling the kid out of the bus. He just wanted to learn what happened. Apparently, it couldn't wait till later that afternoon or even the next day. Even though all school buses in St. John's County have onboard video cameras and recording equipment, this exchange was allegedly not recorded because the tape ran out prior to the incident. So did Jeremy face any repercussions for this stunt? Yes, but it was a slap on the wrist. Deputy Banks received a written reprimand for this incident. Jeremy Banks remains employed as a deputy for the St. John's County Sheriff's Office. creators of Twisted and Pretend, this is Criminal Conduct Season 1, an investigative podcast looking into the death of Michelle O'Connell and the murder of Eli Washtock. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. It's the morning of January 31st, 2019. It's approximately 7.30 a.m. in St. John's County, Florida. It's just after sunrise, but the temperature hasn't even hit 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Though it's a weekday, in this gated golf course community on Florida's east coast, there isn't much more movement or activity than on a weekend. Yet, in a third floor condominium, an emergency situation is unfolding. Do you need law enforcement or fire rescue? Uh... I think I just need an ambulance. I'm not okay with on there. Got shot. Got shot? Yes. The audio is not super clear, so we'll play the audio and then restate what was said when necessary. The operator asked if he needs police, fire, or ambulance. Eli's son said, I think I just need an ambulance. Because this is an ongoing investigation, the open records law in Florida does not apply. Putnam County Sheriff's Office has declined our request for any police reports, crime scene logs, interview summaries, video recordings, and the 911 call that you're listening to right now. The state's attorney's office declined our request for the autopsy. We have to go outside of the official channels to receive any information on Eli's murder. We received this 911 audio file from an undisclosed source. By the way, we are going to bleep out any reference to Eli's juvenile son's name. The operator then asked, what's going on there? Eli's son responded, he got shot. He got shot? Yes. 
Okay, what makes you think that? He's currently laying on the floor with blood around his head. Okay, is he breathing, sir? It does not appear to be so. Okay. And is there any way you can look at his chest and see if, if it's going up and down? I don't believe it is. The operator asked if Eli was breathing. His son said it doesn't appear to be so. And do you want to attempt CPR or do you just want to back out of the room and... I don't even know how to do CPR. Okay, well I can instruct you if you, if you want to try it. Uh, and do you have any idea when this might have happened? No, but it appears to have been here for a little bit. Okay. When was the last time you saw him, sir? Last night. About what time? Uh, roughly 10 o'clock. He said the last time he saw his father was around 10 o'clock the previous evening. Okay, do you see, see a weapon there, sir? Yes, there is a weapon. The call then switched to a second dispatcher. The operator shifted from response mode to more investigative in her questions. Was he depressed or was anything going on? He's not depressed. It's not the norm, but operators do sometimes ask these kinds of questions. But I found it odd for her to ask this question when there was nothing in the call to indicate this could be a suicide. The operator's main focus should have been getting help to the person calling as soon as possible. It's not clear what prompted this line of questioning, but it appeared the operator was pushing a pretty strong narrative here. Were you there all night? No, I was in a different condo. You live in a different condo or you were just staying in a different condo? Staying in a different condo. When the operator asked Eli's son where he stayed the previous night, he responded that he stayed in a different condo. As it, it was his own gun? Yes, it was. He also identified the gun as a 9mm. The questioning returned to a more investigative nature rather than the emergency response. So do you, do you think he did this intentionally? Mm. Hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. Did you think he did this intentionally? He did not do it intentionally. He did not, okay. The operator asked, do you think he did it intentionally? The caller never mentioned that he thought it was a suicide, but the second operator's focus was clearly on this being a suicide. The audio is not clear, but the dispatcher then asked how he knew it was not intentional. Because there is a lot of gunfire. There is a lot of gunfire? He was shot more than once? I don't know, but there are... Shots going through the wall. There's shots going through the wall, okay. He also stated that he didn't know whether Eli was shot more than once. Okay, I need you to go down and meet the deputy in the lobby. The dispatcher then instructs Eli's son to meet police in the lobby. In the process, the son tells the dispatcher that he left his keys inside the condo. The 911 call provided us with some insight into the events just right after Eli's death and the potential circumstances surrounding his murder. To get more information on the layout of the crime scene, we spoke to Eli's family about what they saw when they entered his apartment. When you went down to, to St. Augustine and you went, you went into the apartment af- after Eli was killed? Yes. How would, how would you describe the apartment overall? What I saw was everything was neat and tidy. It wasn't a mess, like it was ransacked or anything. This is Linda Washtock, Eli's mother, talking about the condition of the apartment after he was murdered. Where were the bullet holes? I mean, I know they were in the bedroom, but like, were they in the wall or where were they? In the wall. 
One had gone through a wall into the bathroom mirror. It went through from the bedroom into the bathroom? Yeah, the bathroom was in the bedroom. Were the were the bullet holes low on the wall or high, or where would you describe them in the... I would say both. Okay. How, how many bullet holes would you say there were? I don't really know. I would say, well, it didn't count, but there were more bullet holes than bullets in a chamber. I don't know what kind of gun he had or how many bullets fit in the gun, uh-huh. but it sounded... Uh, a lot like somewhere along the line it got reloaded. Something about the crime scene didn't add up for Eli's sister, Jessica Tiffany. But it blows my mind away there's how many bullet holes that we saw all over and nobody heard gunshots. At most, we know that only one neighbor heard something during the night. And it's not clear if this person heard a gunshot or just a ruckus. No other neighbors reported hearing any gunshots, and we don't know if anyone called 911 when the gunshots rang out. This didn't occur in a single-family house far away from neighboring homes. This was a condominium complex, a three-story building filled with inhabited condos. It's not clear how no one heard any of the gunshots. The murder weapon was Eli's handgun, and he didn't have a silencer for his gun. Plus, even with some kind of suppression, it's likely the gunshots would have been clearly audible to the neighbors. Eli Washtock lived in World Golf Village in St. Johns County, Florida. The Laterra complex consists of three three-story apartment buildings with grand arch entrances and tiled roofs designed to represent the old Spanish colonial architecture of old downtown St. Augustine. There are 149 units across the three buildings. Eli Washtock lived on the third floor of the middle building. Along with a 911 call, we were also able to obtain pictures from inside Eli's condo, which were taken after his murder, but prior to when the cleaning company arrived at the crime scene. Eli Washtock was killed inside the bedroom of his one-bedroom condo. In order to better understand the crime scene, I will describe the layout of the room. Think of Eli's bedroom as a rectangle, and the entry to the doorway is in the bottom right corner of that rectangle. When you walk into the room, the closet's to your right and the television cabinet is to your left. In front of that TV cabinet is a queen-size bed. The bed takes up most of the room. Eli was found on the floor on the far side of the bedroom. His body lay parallel to his bed, near the far wall, which has a window. John and I jumped on Skype the moment we received the pictures. We recorded our conversation. Yeah, so this picture right here that we're looking at, do you see my screen? Javier is pointing to a picture from inside Eli's bedroom. Beneath where Eli's body was discovered, there was a blood stain on the carpet where his head rested. I'm looking at this picture right now. I mean, it does appear to be a footstep near a couple feet away from the pool of blood. That's what it looks like. And I mean, so what you know is that the person that stepped there, they stepped there after Eli was killed or after he was shot and bleeding out. And that the person was on the most likely on the other side of him to do that. Yeah. Um, The the footstep was walking away, too. Yeah, I feel pretty confident that that was the killer's footprint, not police. It could be police. But they would have had to walked over and had their feet basically up against his head and then stepped on the carpeting. It's possible, but I think that I would lean toward that footprint being from the killer. You know, also the bloody footprint, 
we know that Eli's son was the one that called 911. Maybe he was checking on him, and maybe that's how the bloody footprint got there. Yeah, that's true. It's possible. The partial bloody footprint stain is positioned between the end of the bed and the television cabinet. So the footprint is not clear enough that you could identify uh, the size or the shoe make or model or whatever from the footprint itself. Like it's not a distinct enough footprint that it shows you the entire size shoe or would leave possibly even tread marks in the carpeting. It's just the appearance of blood that was probably transferred from the bottom of a shoe onto the carpeting. Yeah. But it doesn't appear to be clear enough that you could do any kind of analysis mm-hmm. of it. Some of these shots are really high up. Like one is above the door frame. Yeah. One went through the bathroom mirror. The other one, wasn't there one on the ceiling? Yep, there's one on the ceiling. Here's the incredibly strange aspect of the crime scene. Eli was found on the floor between the bed and the far wall, the wall with the window. There was very little distance between the bed and the wall, maybe a little more than the width of a nightstand. Yet the gunshots were from that side of the room. The gunman was in the far corner of the room. There is very little space there. A person could barely fit between Eli and the far wall. Here, I'm going to talk more about the gunshots within the room. It doesn't appear unless Eli was diving around the room trying to avoid shots. It almost looks like somebody was shooting in a haphazard fashion, just firing around the room based on where these rounds were hitting. I mean, you've got this one on the, if you're where the shooter's standing, it's to the right. So they shot through the right wall. You have a shot through the lamp that would be against the left wall. Uh, You've got a shot up in the ceiling on the left side. You've got a shot into the doorway on the far wall. Uh, You've got shots all over that room. There is no pattern to the shooting in that room. Then we turn to the pictures of the blood on Eli's closet door for more clues. I think he was most likely on his knees. And the reason I say that is if you go to the picture, the other one I uploaded from today, which is just the door to the closet, the blood spatter. This one? Yep, yep. See how low that blood spatter is? The picture shows a large pattern of blood spatter on the tan-colored walls and the white closet door. Doors have three hinges, and all the blood spatter is below the second hinge. Yeah. Near the floor. Which is probably a little over three feet, maybe high, the second hinge. So that blood spatter is anywhere from four inches off the floor to maybe two and a half feet up, maybe three feet. It's uh, a pretty wide cast, it is. right? So that tells you that it came from far away? That's what I think. I don't know that for certain, but that's my, that would be my understanding of what would cause that. This is how we know the direction of the gunshot, because of the blood spatter on the far wall. So if you look at the, the spatter itself, if you zoom in on it and look at those dots... They're all very circular. So that means that they were coming at a high speed and that they were no angle to them. So it mm. wasn't like upward or downward. That stuff is almost coming at it like well, horizontal. horizontal to the floor. Yeah. And so they're like perfect, at, perfect little circles. Yeah. There's no tails to them. Like if that, like if it was a blunt force trauma, there would be like a tail, like with cast off. And uh, so, and those are some pretty significant uh, size dots. The blood spatter just tells me, I mean, that's from a head wound and that's very low. So my feeling, I I feel like Eli was very low to the ground when that happened. 
like an execution almost. Putnam County kind of floated this idea that it could be a suicide. I mean, uh-huh. although they ultimately ruled it a homicide. From what we could tell here, does this look like a scene where a suicide took place? Well, the bloody footprint would be the biggest thing that if it wasn't the police, they would tell you it wasn't a suicide. But based on where he is, my guess is there's a good chance that shot fired probably was a contact wound shot. So it would have been something that was very close, not at any kind of distance. It's possible those other rounds, if he was only hit once in the head and all those other rounds could have just been fired beforehand. And you could have been like, oh, he was mad and shooting the gun or something. So of the footprint is the main thing from these pictures that would exclude suicide to me. But I don't know. We don't know how many times Eli's been shot. But because the mom and the sister had said that they felt like the, the police were insinuating it could be a suicide. That is that would be investigators who had been to the crime scene. They have seen this. They've seen him. They know the evidence. They don't know it fully, but they've got a pretty good look at things. And they're asking the family if he was suicidal. Yeah. At the very least, that was 12 hours after the fact, but it was most likely the next day. So they would have had a pretty good handle on that crime scene. And why they're asking the family if he was suicidal or not tells me they thought that that this could have been a suicide. But keep in mind, this was Eli's gun. And uh, they found the gun. Eli kept the gun in the um, nightstand. If you look at a, say, an unknown perpetrator coming in to kill Eli, they would have come in through the front door, walked into his bedroom, gone into his nightstand while he was asleep or somewhere else in that apartment, gotten the gun, and then gone over to the other side of the bedroom and then killed him. Hmm. So somebody knew where he kept his gun? Yeah, I mean, it's not a bad guess, but... If we are going to start looking, I mean, a dresser drawer is not a bad place to look, but that would be pretty risky going in there hoping or thinking you could get it. Or Eli was spooked, grabbed his gun and got into some sort of, you know, altercation and they got the gun from him and then shot him with his own gun. Sure. Yeah. So, okay. So you walk into the bedroom and the lamp is like the first thing you see. Then next to it is the bed. So they're right. coming from the, that direction, from the corner of the room, is what you're saying. Yes, that's what it looks like. Okay. And, like, obviously the shot to the ceiling would be at an upward trajectory. But the shot to the lamp on the nightstand also appears to be in an upward trajectory based on the fact that it shot through two sides of the lamp so we can see the trajectory. And that just that's, means that the person was very low to the ground or low to, low to the floor on the other side of the room to have an upward trajectory at a lamp on a nightstand. Okay, so you're thinking that the killer was just sitting down on that chair? I, I think it's possible that killer was sitting in the chair. The killer could have been sitting on the, gr- on the floor in the room. Uh, the killer could have been kneeling on the floor as well. But I feel like they were in a very low crouched position on the far side of the room. So I'm, I'm seeing like at least three or four bullets. My understanding is it sounds like there were probably closer to 10 rounds fired. Remember Eli's front door? News reports said the door was replaced because it was broken in. Eli's son locked the door when he left the apartment. So when the police entered, they're the ones that had to break the lock to get into that apartment. Right, because the initial reports were that somebody broke into his apartment. 
and kill them. But yeah. now we're thinking maybe that was the police. Yeah, I don't think there there was no forced entry. That was the police, I think, that did that. And what else do we know about the apartment? Was anything taken? There was money missing. The missing money was identified by Eli's son. It was hidden in a dish inside a kitchen cabinet. It's not clear how much money was missing or how the perpetrator even knew that the money was there. Money's missing, and the only two people that knew it were there, one of them's dead. And possibly the binder. Yeah, the binder was taken. Yeah, so everything pertaining to Michelle's investigation was taken out of the house. By all accounts, the investigators for Putnam County Sheriff's Office took Eli's white binder into evidence. Police also obtained other duplicate binders that Eli kept in a bank safety deposit box. The pictures provided a lot of answers, but they also generated many, many more questions. This is pretty crazy, man. It is. It's it's hard to come up with a really good theory on what, what could have taken place in that room. On the morning of January 31st, 2019, the St. Johns County Sheriff's Office responded to the 911 call you just heard. After arriving at the scene, it was determined that Eli Washtock was investigating Michelle O'Connell's death. How exactly they determined that, we don't know. Once the responding officers figured out that there was a connection to the Michelle O'Connell case, they sent the information up the chain of command. The decision was made to recuse the organization from this investigation. St. John's County Sheriff's deputy stayed on the scene for at least four hours before turning the case over to a neighboring department, Putnam County Sheriff's Office. Putnam County is to the southwest of St. John's County. This slogan on the county's tourist site is, quote, visit Putnam County and slow down. Overseeing the Putnam County Sheriff's Office is Sheriff Gator Deloche. The entire county has only 75,000 residents, which results in a significantly smaller sheriff's office than St. John's County. Putnam County Sheriff's Office provided a few press conferences regarding Eli Washtock's death, and what they said was quite vague. Here are Eli's sister and mother talking about the initial reports. If you look at the original reporting and a lot of things that were said and how the police presented it, it really sounded like a suicide. Yeah. I mean, that's when I first heard about it, that's what I thought mm-hmm. was going to be the conclusion. So I was very surprised that they came back with homicide. So in the way that they presented it to us, too, we were just hoping that the ME would come back as homicide because the way they presented it to us, it could be one or the other. And it was very upsetting that they would even... I never believed it for a minute because he no. thought too much of his kids Yeah, no, to leave absolutely. his children. When the medical examiner ruled Eli Washtock's death a homicide in early May of 2019, Putnam County detectives were forced to treat it as such. It's been over 16 months since Eli's murder, and there is no new information from Putnam County Sheriff's Office. Putnam County Sheriff's Office has declined to speak with us on the record or provide us with any documentation on Eli Washtock's murder. This is understandable to some extent because it is an active investigation. But how have they been communicating with Eli's immediate family? Here's Eli's dad, Jim Washtock. The the Putnam Police Department in this case have been very standoffish. They haven't provided any much of any information on this case. Are they giving you any kind of indication that they're making progress on this case, or are they keeping you out of the loop? 
they are keeping me out of the loop. And I've I've gone down there. Uh, we went down there in the fall because I had an appointment with uh, the detective. He uh, called me up when we were on our way over to meet with him and said he had some emergency that they couldn't meet with us. The last week or two weeks ago, I called him and said, hey, I'd like to talk to you. I've got a couple of questions. He said, okay, uh, I got an appointment. He said, can you call at this time? And I did, and of course, couldn't get a hold of him. Talked to the guy answering the phones down there. He said, well, give me your number. I'll have him call you. I'm still waiting for that call. Yeah, I, I'm done. Eli's sister, Jessica, didn't feel much better about how Putnam County Sheriff's Office assisted the family. We don't get a lot out of the police. We didn't get a lot out of the police the first time we were down there. Um, the second time Jim and Sharon went down there, they didn't get a lot. They didn't get anything out of the police, anything different. We still haven't gotten a lot out of the. We still, I know no more than what I knew on the day of his funeral. Since she is divorced from Eli's dad, I asked Linda Washtalk, Eli's mother, if Putnam County was keeping her in the loop regarding their investigation into her son's murder. I don't know what's going on. We don't know nothing. In Florida, there is a Crime Victims Bill of Rights, which lays out the rights for a crime victim and his or her family. It lists many rights entitled to victims and to their next of kin, including the right to be informed, to be present, and to be heard when relevant at all crucial stages of a criminal proceedings. It doesn't appear that Putnam County Sheriff's Office is meeting this obligation with Eli's family. To delve deeper into who may have been in or near Eli's condo when he was murdered, we incorporated geofencing technology. Is this where you drop a ring around the location just for a given time to determine which cell phones were there? Yes, but it's not that straightforward. The technology utilized only provided a randomized anonymous code for each cell phone. So how does this help us if it doesn't identify a phone number or the person who owns the phone? Well, we can track the movements of a given cell phone, and depending on the movements, we can possibly figure out whose phone it is. Okay, so what did we find out? After placing a ring around Eli's condo during the time he was likely murdered, we accumulated a list of randomized codes associated with cell phones in the immediate area. After we eliminated neighbors and also likely law enforcement officers responding to the 911 call, we zeroed in on about a half a dozen phones. The first thing we did was figure out where those cell phones went after they left the area of the crime scene. These would be the cell phones that entered the vicinity of the crime scene and then left prior to the 911 call. Keep in mind that Eli lived in a condo building. This technology doesn't account for vertical space, so anyone could be on the first floor or the third floor and it wouldn't differentiate. How about the distance? How wide of a ring did you create around Eli's condo? As this perimeter encompasses about 100 feet around Eli's condo, which means it covers many condos other than his specific condo. It also captured parts of the surrounding landscape and parking areas. These results only indicate that the cell phones were in close proximity to Eli's condo, not necessarily in it by any means. All right, so let's talk about the results. What did you find? Since many people thought his murder might be tied to his looking into Michelle O'Connell's case, I figured we should cover that angle. We put rings around St. John's County Sheriff's Office, Putnam County Sheriff's Office, and others who may have a vested interest in the outcome of an investigation into the death of Michelle O'Connell to see if anyone left Eli's condo and went to any of these locations. Did any of these phones go to any of those locations? 
No, and just to be sure, we tracked the movements of all six cell phones after the murder, and none of them went anywhere that could be even remotely connected to anyone with St. John's County Sheriff's Office. So what do you make of these results? Since the technology only pulls a subset of all the cell phones in the immediate vicinity of Eli's condo, it only provides us with a partial answer. Not everyone carries their cell phone everywhere they go, especially if they plan to commit a felony. Regardless, these results provided a sampling, and based on our sample, it's unlikely anyone came into Eli's condo from outside the complex within the likely time frame of the murder. I'm pretty confident in the technology, but I also know that the net we cast has holes in it. It could have missed someone, but it also helps to direct our focus regarding possible persons of interest. And as of right now, none of the phones track to anyone outside of World Golf Village. Several people close to the case claim that Jeremy has an alibi. However, we have no proof of this. Here's community activist Ed Slavin talking about Jeremy Banks. Somebody connected to Jeremy Banks actually put out there the day of the homicide being discovered that Jeremy Banks had, a, had an alibi because he was in training. Now, training is ordinarily between like eight and five. And I don't know, what time was the homicide? There's really no way to know if Jeremy Banks has an alibi or not because we really don't know exactly when Eli Washtock died. And there's a good chance that we don't know who the suspect is because we don't have a clear picture of who Eli was spending his time with. Could there have been another person in his life? Putnam County investigators have possession of Eli's computer and his cell phone. They can easily recreate Eli's network to figure out the characters in his life. So let's go back to the press conference where Putnam County announced Eli's death. I think just really, I, I think, just think you, we're trying to understand if there's no threat to the community, but there's not a suspect caught. The, there's a little bit of confusion between those those two facts. Again, because of the nature of the investigation, I cannot divulge why we believe that, but we are confident that there is no threat to the community. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Why were police so confident that the murderer was not out there? We asked St. John's County Sheriff David Shore about the investigation into Eli's murder. I have one more question for you. Go ahead. Go ahead, John. My last question for you would be, why did you choose not to investigate Eli Washtock's death? You being St. John's County. Whose death? Eli Washtock. Who's Eli Washtock? Eli Washtock, uh, Craig Washtock, or Ellie Marie Washtock. The- oh, that that guy. <laughs> that guy, that guy comes into town. He's a transvestite or some shit. I don't even know the whole story. Who got spun up on this thing through the World Wide Web or whatever. And he winds up here. He, I don't really know much about him. He wasn't here long. He's living on one floor of a condo. His son's living on the bottom floor of the condo. Blah, 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 blah. But because he had an interest in the Michelle O'Connell case and he was allegedly investigating it, what do people do? Oh, oh. Guy's a nut, guy was a nut job. He's what he was. I know he's dead and I feel terrible about that, but I can't help it. I mean, I got a pretty good idea who killed him, but, you know, you can only do what you can do, right? Under the law. Based on the fact that he was looking into Michelle's case, you felt it was prudent to not investigate? Oh, oh, why we didn't? Yeah, oh, yes. At that point, yes. All right, I got your question now, John. No, the reason I did that was because by then this case was, I mean, it, it, anything touching the O'Connell case is what they put us through uh, with their insanity. And it's been insanity, vicious insanity, by the way. 
If Sheriff Shore knows who killed Eli, then Putnam County Sheriff's Office surely knows. So where do things stand with the Michelle O'Connell death investigation? Where will it go from here? Here are Sheriff Shore's comments on the future of this case. You know, I normally wouldn't even be talking about this case, quite frankly, because I'm kind of done with it. I, I really am. I mean, I, 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 and it's one of the reasons I was kind of putting you off. Plus, I've had a million things going on, but I don't really, because it doesn't serve any purpose, because number one, the case can never be prosecuted. We already know that. So if, let's say, for instance, Jeremy came up and admitted more he killed her. We can't prosecute him. Rusty Rogers has fucked this case up so badly that if you, you, if we had it on video, we couldn't prosecute the son of a bitch. But he didn't kill her. This September marks the 10th anniversary of Michelle's death. Throughout this decade, Michelle's case has seen many turns. Three medical examiners ruled her death a suicide. Then a crime scene reconstructionist hired by FDLE contradicted the previous rulings and said her death was most likely a homicide. Despite this new forensic evidence, state attorney Brad King declined to prosecute. Then the governor of Florida got involved and reopened the case and ultimately decided to let it go. But this case is not over. There's no statute of limitations for homicide. Michelle's body was exhumed in 2016, and it was discovered that she had a broken jaw. That evidence was never re-examined by authorities. And just now, in this podcast, we released Anna Cox's blood spatter report commissioned by Eli Washtock. This never-before-seen evidence can't be ignored. Now, it's up to the new sheriff of St. Johns County to decide if the broken jaw and the blood-soaked shirt is enough to reopen the case. Only time will tell. So who would want to kill Eli Washtock? Many people have looked into the Michelle O'Connell case. It wasn't just Eli Washtock. So if Jeremy Banks was out for revenge for anyone building a case against him, he would have a long list of people to go after, including state attorneys, state investigators, forensic professionals, private investigators, just to name a few. So why would he pick Eli of all people? It doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. Even if the evidence doesn't lead investigators to a potential suspect, police usually focus on the victim's family and close friends as a means for gathering information, but also possibly to flesh out the culprit. From there, the next ring would include work associates and acquaintances. Beyond that, you move into the stranger realm. And stranger killings are pretty rare. I guess it's hard to prove a negative, but we haven't uncovered any information or any evidence that would lead us to believe that anyone from St. John's County Sheriff's Office or anyone closely related to the Sheriff's Office was involved in Eli's death in any way. If this ever changes in the future, we will definitely report on it. What characteristics of Eli's murder lead you to believe that it was someone close to him? First of all, there was no forced entry. Who had a key? Who would Eli let into his condo? Second, the murder weapon was Eli's gun. Who knew he had a gun and where he kept it? Is there anything else that leads you to believe that this was someone close to Eli? Yes, the money was allegedly missing from his condo. 
money that was hidden inside a dish in a kitchen cabinet. Crime scene technicians don't regularly search sugar containers or inside dishes to look for hidden items, unless there's a specific reason to do so. This means the perpetrator knew the money was there and took it. This would only be someone Eli trusted enough to tell this person the location of the money. Where was Eli's ex-girlfriend, Katrina, when he was killed? Katrina Van Knocker was in Wisconsin when Eli was murdered. She flew down to St. Augustine on the evening of January 31st, 2019, after learning of his death. Eli's young daughter was in Wisconsin with her mother. The rest of Eli's family was also in Wisconsin when he was killed. It was just Eli and his teenage son in St. Augustine. An off-the-record source indicated that there is something on Eli's cell phone that led investigators to believe that he had a close relationship with someone at the time of his murder. This person may know more than she has revealed at this point. We spoke with her, but she refused to allow us to interview her for the podcast. The information she did provide was vague and added little context. Could this person hold the key to understanding who wanted Eli Wostock dead? Throughout our investigation and research, we have recreated a portion of what Eli Washtock collected in his white three-ring binder on the Michelle O'Connell case. We couldn't track down everything because many of the experts that he contacted couldn't even confirm for us whether he hired them or not, much less provide us with any of their findings. Here's John Spence, one of the attorneys Eli hired. Did he utilize you to seek out experts or was he only just directly working with you? That would be something that would be confidential okay. that I couldn't discuss. Okay. Yeah. You know, we, we talked last time about some of the, the things that we know that he was working with you, which was the water consumption, but is that something that we could talk about? Uh, well, here, here's kind of the rub just for you guys. So if, if you found, Whatever I sent him was done in confidence. If somebody else got what I sent him in confidence because he gave it to them, it'd still be inappropriate for me to talk about it. I couldn't divulge it to you okay. guys. There's just no way of knowing if we found every expert Eli hired. We looked into his theory on the water records for Jeremy and Michelle's house on the night of Michelle's death. We spoke with lawyers who advised him on various legal avenues and we obtained many of the same documents Eli gathered, such as crime scene photos, police reports, depositions, autopsy reports, and timelines. We also tracked down the blood spatter expert, Anna Cox. Eli hired her to do a blood spatter analysis based on the crime scene photos from Michelle O'Connell's death. Eli died prior to learning any of her results. We were able to view her report and interview her. Her expert opinions certainly would have gone into Eli's binder. If and when Eli Washtock's murder case is closed, we will be able to compare what we compiled with what Eli had. Until then, we will keep collecting items to complete our collection. I asked Eli's childhood friend, Matt Utek, about what resolution would look like for them with regard to Eli's murder. I mean, ultimately, if... Whatever, you believe in afterlife or what would satisfy people, I think Eli would be perfectly satisfied whatever happened to him never being solved if the truth came out about the Michelle O'Connell case. Eli Washtock and Michelle O'Connell lived in the same city at the same time, and who knows if they ever crossed paths. 
And even though they likely never met, today they're resting almost side by side in San Lorenzo Cemetery in St. Augustine, Florida. Friends and family who visit place sunflowers on both their grave sites. We don't have many recordings of Michelle's voice, but here she is telling her daughter that she loves her. Here's Eli talking with his son while playing video games. Say hello. To who? The camera. That? Yes. Hello. But their legacy will forever be intertwined. And their memories live on with their friends and family, as does the search for justice. Be on the lookout for season two, coming out in 2021. Whether it's a famous true crime case or one you've never heard of, Twisted covers anything perplexing, disturbing, or intriguing. Twice a month, me, your host, John Taylor, delves into some facet of true crime, whether that's a wrongful conviction or an interview with an expert on eyewitness identification. Twisted utilizes in-depth research and analysis to unravel the intricacies of true crime. Twisted is available almost anywhere you listen to podcasts. To get more information, go to twistedpodcast.com. A special thanks to our executive producer, AdvertiseCast, and to Ruby Rose Fox for allowing us to use her song, Bury the Body. Her music is available anywhere you can purchase music. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to check out our other shows. John Taylor hosts a podcast called Twisted. Each episode, John unravels intricacies of true crime and does a deep dive analysis of some of the most thought-provoking crime cases. And check out the show Pretend Podcast. It's hosted by me, Javier Leva. Pretend is a true crime documentary style podcast about real people pretending to be someone else. I interview con artists and their victims. The links to both of our shows are in the show notes. Creative power.